From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. There are many pleasures in the making of this podcast. One is the very nature of the medium itself. It is available at your whim, not on our schedule. And it is international. I regularly hear from listeners around the world. I'm able to have full conversations with artists I admire and find out how some of the most revered artists in our genre operate and create. But it also gives me the opportunity to share people and projects that I've embraced that you might otherwise not have heard of. Until the pandemic cut off world travel, for years I was afforded the opportunity to travel to film festivals around the world and discover movies that would never find screens in the U.S. I've met filmmakers from around the globe who've appeared on the show to talk about their work and have gained new fans from it, and that always makes me happy. Some years ago, I discovered a very odd, very dark English comedy show called The League of Gentlemen. Set in the fictitious town of Royston Vasey, Reese Shearsmith, Steve Pemberton, and Mark Gatiss wrote and played virtually all of the characters in a wildly original, deeply hilarious amalgam of unforgettable people and ideas. But I had to get the DVDs from Amazon UK. After Mark Gatiss left to work on Doctor Who and co-create the Sherlock series, Shearsmith and Pemberton created, wrote, and starred in Psychoville, which dove even more deeply than the League had. But for the last several years, despite both of them appearing in numerous movies and TV shows, Shearsmith and Pemberton's focus has been on their own brilliant anthology series, Inside Number 9. With its roots in everything from hammer horror to British traditional music halls, every episode is completely self-contained and completely different from the show that preceded it. Until recently, Inside Number 9 was available on HBO Max, but it has just changed course. Uh, The first two seasons are available on Hulu, and all of the seasons, including the upcoming Season 6, are available on BritBox in the States. Our guest, Reese Shearsmith, 
offers up an astounding variety of characters as both writer and performer. And this man of many talents, including as a magician, which only makes sense, joins us on the slab to give us a view into how he got here and where he came from. You know, there's something special about having a physical copy of a horror movie to add to your collection. I recently discovered Horror Pack, a subscription box that sends you four horror movies on Blu-ray or DVD each and every month. The Blu-ray pack always has a Horror Pack limited edition plus three other titles. The packs have a mixture of independent and mainstream horror, starting at $19.99 with free U.S. shipping for DVD or $24.99 for Blu-ray. Use code POSTMORTEM to get $3 off your first pack at HorrorPack.com. That's HorrorPack.com, H-O-R-R-O-R-P-A-C-K.com. Now that we're based at the Dread Podcast Network, I'd love to bring you up to date on some of the Dread Presents movie releases. Now available from Dread Presents is For the Sake of Vicious, where an overworked nurse returns home to find a maniac hiding out with a bruised and beaten hostage. When an unexpected wave of violent intruders descend upon her home, it becomes a fight for survival. Available on demand everywhere and on Blu-ray. Now available also from Dread Presents, Benny Loves You. Jack, a man desperate to improve his life, throws away his beloved childhood plush, Benny. It's a move that has disastrous consequences when Benny springs to life with deadly intentions. Available on demand everywhere and on Blu-ray June 8th. Coming soon from Dread Presents, Queen of Spades. According to legend, an ominous entity known as the Queen of Spades can be summoned by performing an ancient ritual. Four teenagers summon the Queen of Spades, but they could never imagine the horrors that await them. Available on demand everywhere on June 15th and on Blu-ray June 29th. So check out the upcoming and current releases from Dread Presents now. Reese, thank you so much for joining us here. You're very welcome. Lovely to meet you, Mick. And thank you for that very flattering introduction. Well, not very, <laughs> oh, very heartfelt and truly deserved. So tell me where it started. You grew up in Hull. Um, were you uh, a showy kid, the, the smart ass in the class, or were you the opposite of that? <laughs> yeah, I think you can probably tell that I was, uh, I was very quiet reading Edgar Allan Poe behind closed curtains in the summer mm -hmm. months. My mum saying, go outside and play. It's a lovely day. And I would be, I was a monster kid, as you would probably uh -huh. no doubt have guessed. You know, I was uh, obsessed with uh, quite dark humour from uh, as long as I can remember, really. I mean, it genuinely was uh, uh, very, you know, a, a quiet, shy individual with, uh, and I would read Edgar Allan Poe and Sherlock Holmes and, um, and lots of dark dark stuff and i'd collect little i would collect all the aurora models you know and you build did them. that too i did eh? of course wow. yeah it's very strange how when you find people that have had the exact same childhood as you yeah and, i actually <laughs> got one of i got an award as master monster maker for one of those model kits from famous monsters <laughs> yes of course brilliant well my favorite was always the um the, the lost prisoner 
that, which was very creepy. Oh. He was in the in yeah. the dungeon. Yeah, that was a great yes. one. And, um, Shredded. So yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And the Lon Chaney, of course, was always terrifying when his mask was revealed. So yeah, I was um, from a very early age exposed, probably too young to, first of all, the uh, um, the Universal monsters because they were all on uh, BBC Two at late night on a Saturday night. They would have a an horror double bill of the a Universal and then usually a Hammer. Oh, that would, nice. That would start at about 1.05 in the morning. So for a little kid who was about 11 or 12, you should not be staying up and watching these things. Did but you I have did. to set an alarm clock so that you could be able to be up at one? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I would creep down and um, turn the TV back on and suddenly there would be, you know, Horror Express or uh, Brides of Frankenstein or Freaks even. I remember seeing Freaks far too early in one, one Easter. Wow. So yeah, amazing, and that was really the the start of a, of a lifelong obsession with horror that that turned into, as we'll get onto, I'm not sure, a, a mixture of horror and comedy as well, because of course the two are so finely linked, and uh, that those are my two loves really. That's really fantastic. So, were did you perform as a kid? Yeah, I, I well, I was, I loved it. I didn't really ever do much of it. We, I remember the very first thing I ever. Uh, starred in was a was a small role as the cowardly lion and we did uh, a, produ- a school production of the wizard of oz and i was and i just remember being very excited and pleased with the laughter that i was getting so that that was like mm-hmm. a light bulb moment of thinking this is good fun from someone who was very shy to right. a sort of controlled environment where i was made to be the attention seeker but it wasn't me actually it was this once removed version of me that was allowed to have to be b- bigger and, and more bold than the real Reese because I'm still very shy actually I think but as, really? as a lot of actors are yeah and right. uh, it, it's sort of through the medium of of playing a part and having rehearsed lines that I'm able to sort of um, go through the door and be a bolder extrovert you know where actually I, I am actually quite quiet private person really but um, people can't quite believe that I don't think and it's, it's strange of actors isn't it you think they're such a bold personality or they feel so alive in the room and then you, you meet these people and they're cripplingly shy and it's really surprising right. well they're able to wear the costume of a character and, and yeah it's not them it's the co- the character and that's yet, right and yet the character only works if you connect to it personally and in, in a very real sense Absolutely, yes. It's not everyone that can can do it, I suppose. And that's the odd thing about um you often see the trajectory of people that begin in stand-up. And it's great when a stand-up can do can suddenly be a great actor as well, because that's not always necessarily so, I don't think. Because I think right. being a stand-up in comedy is a very different I could never do that where it's I know it's a version of themselves, but to, to sort of stand there and be apparently yourself and just riffing on these thoughts obviously all just rehearsed and jokes. yeah just seemingly exposed as yourself yeah that's something i would be quite uh, alarmed at well but, when uh, you yeah. went when you went to breton hall did you study theater uh, or was this entirely an outside activity for you uh it was yes it was well i was very good at art as well when i was little and when uh-huh. i arrived at the crossroads of whether or what i was going to do with my future it was either going to be art or it would in some sort of graphic design i would i loved i was obsessed with creep show of course uh-huh. and I, I i made my own creep show comics on riffing on the stories fantastic and drew them all and everything and uh 
yeah, Bernie Wrightson was a huge inspiration, and um, Jack came and all the all the rest of the EC comics was you know again a childhood love. And, yeah, um, I was able to get Bernie Wrightson <laughs> to do all of the paintings for the movie I did called Riding the Bullet. Yes, he came up to Vancouver and did all the wall paintings and oh, everything. Oh my goodness, amazing! Such such a god of the arts. Absolutely, art. yes, absolutely. That must have been such a thrill. I mean, yeah, amazing. Every single drawing and painting you ever see of his, you just go, wow, that's just beautiful. And um, yeah, yes. So um, I arrived at the crossroads of what I should do with my future. And I decided that um, instead of trying art, which was all on the cards, I'd got very good uh, grades at my A-levels and I got a place at the graphic art design college in in the north and I didn't do it I suddenly decided to switch and try acting because I thought if I never try it now this is the the point where I think I'll be able to look back and regret not trying it so I was hedging my bets by going to Bretton Hall which was a, de a degree in theatre arts so it wasn't quite a drama school but I thought well if I if I fail I could end up doing what they all do which is teach it those who can do those who can't teach <laughs> so I decided that I would have it up my sleeve. So, um, uh, but in the meantime, having uh, decided that's what would happen, I wrote, because I was always um, uh, a big uh, special effects and makeup and horror um, dabbler. And I, I, I bought uh, lots of makeup and I'd try makeup on myself. I would cast my own face and I would make hands and, and gashed foreheads, et cetera, et cetera. And I wrote to Chris Tucker, who was the makeup man behind the Elephant Man and the Company of Wolves and lots of great special effects and makeup. Brilliant. And he suddenly out of the blue wrote back to me. Yeah. And he said, um, do you want to come and apprenticeship work with me? And this was like, wow. and I decided I was going to act. And I was suddenly thought, this is incredible. I cannot believe this man. There's just, and so I went to his mansion in Pangbourne where he lives. And I sort of worked with him with a group of these other guys that were there doing the special effects and slush molding for the Phantom of the Opera, because he'd just done the, the makeup for uh, Michael Crawford as the Phantom that was wow. on in the musical. And I was sort of day-to-day -day making the slush mills that were going to Toronto and Chicago and New York and all, as because the, the show was around the world. And it was the most amazing experience, but I was suddenly, I still had this, because this light had been ignited about acting, I suddenly thought, what? I, I think I'm past wanting to do this now despite the fact that this is an incredible opportunity for someone who would want to love to do this. Who and I also thought- a monster kid, yeah. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And this was like, well, this is surely everything you ever wanted. And I was like, but I did, I still had this doubt that I, I, it wasn't the right thing that I should be doing, despite the fact that I was immersed in the world of, of everything I loved. You know, I was, I was staying in a room with Gregory Peck's head from the boys from Brazil with his <laughs> neck ripped out in the corner of one side and, and um, awesome. the elephant man in the other. Amazing. <laughs> so I couldn't believe it. I was like, look, there he is. But um, in the end I left, I, I sort of, it was because I slightly got cold feet about the setup as well. I didn't quite know what the situation was. It was like I was Jonathan Harker in Castle Dracula, essentially. Uh. I, I eventually thought, when does this end and what's the, am I paid? It was just very sort of like there was unspoken. I was just in the house. And so I, I literally sort of fled in the night one night. I just suddenly got cold feet about the whole experience and went. But um, an amazing man and a fantastic opportunity. But And I felt terrible for sort of relinquishing it because it was like this is this would be so amazing for someone who was whose thing was special effects and makeup because you couldn't get 
better in the hands of someone who was a complete master of the craft. But uh, I didn't do it. And I went back home and I went back and I did three years at Bretton Hall. And then I became a supposed actor and uh, tried bits, parts, bits and bobs. And it wasn't really until we had our own thing, which was the league. And to, that was the point when we sort of had that our reputations preceded us. And we then had 10 years of that on TV and we worked and worked you know, through and we've now become sort of thing in our, in our own rights and have managed to still stay in the game doing our horror comedies all, all in our separate ways. Well, what's amazing about it is that you went into it as an actor, but also as a writer. So you controlled your own destiny. You created these roles knowing what your talents were, what your limits were, although I, as I see it, there were no limits to what you were able to do. Um, and so how did that come about? Was that something that came out of, of college, uh, you and Gatiss and Pemberton? Yes, it was. Yeah, we, I met Mark and Steve. They were in the year above me at Bretton Hall. And I, I sort of looked up to them. They were the two that were doing their own stuff and they were writing plays and they were very funny, deeply funny people. And um very talented and so I was like the fledgling and it wasn't really until I left Brett that we all got back together to do stuff together and we did stuff on the fringe comedy shows and sketches and but really it wasn't until um and we started writing stuff sort of individually I shared a flat with Steve for a while after after Breton and we were writing sketches not really ever sure whether with it with no master plan that was the thing about the league it was never we never had a a thought in our heads that what we have to do is become famous for these sketches on the fringe, because then we will get a TV show or get a radio show. You know, we, we never really had a, a plan. Although I, I sort of look back now and I recognize that we were driven because we didn't stop. We just, it felt like we had to do it. It just was hmm. pouring out of us at that time. And it was that great time in your life. I think that, um, Sadaka calls the hungry years where, uh, where you, you, you know, you want, you, you just can't not do it. And it was, an exciting time. And it was the Edinburgh Festival in, in Scotland where we first took oh, our stuff. Very important fest. Yeah, that was it. That was where we um, arrived with our one hour's worth of sketches that were sort of our best of. We tried them out in London over many, many months, um, trying different sketches. And then we honed them and honed them until we had a sort of version of the TV series that that appeared on stage and we had these characters and each one would have a returning sketch. So you'd get a little bit more about their lives. But the thing about the league on stage was that it was very slick. It was, it, it was very theatrical and we were just very drilled and regimented. And it was, it was, um, it wasn't really rocket science, but it was great. It was very well put together because the thing we'd seen other sketch shows and the thing that always let them down was that they were scrappy. They were in between the sketches. There was a, the curtains were flapping, the tinkling piano, the chairs were <laughs> scruffed off the stage. And we thought we've got to be able to do it so that it's like watching a TV, like watching the sketches whiz by in a flash. And, and so I think that was partly what was impressive about our pr presentation of these things, because it was it didn't stop. It was very well orchestrated. And the drilling of the three chairs, because when we did it, it was very stripped down. There was th we three in our tuxedos. And um, Jeremy Dyson, who also co-wrote wrote the league with us, he would do the, our lights and he was fantastic at getting it all put together. And we drilled it and drilled it so that it was a very slick show. And I think that set us apart as well as anything else. And the darkness of the material, we were quite um, out of favour as far as sketch shows were concerned. The tone and taste of comedy at the time was all stand up and we were 
a sketch show and it was quite unusual to have, I think, but we were, it was the League of Gentlemen and our look, which was all tuxedos, was a sort of riff, a, a, a blackly comic sly joke to have people slightly blindsided by the darkness of our material when they, <laughs> it looked like we were sort of an Oxbridge, um, very light comic troupe. And yet we were doing these quite dark sketches. So our original poster ever was the, we three in tuxedos, but with knives. So we, saw, <laughs> we had this slightly savage edge to us. So, and that was where it all kicked off. We, we went to Edinburgh in 1996 with our first show. We, we paid it for it ourselves. We, we did the posters and we fly leafed in the street where you stand there and you, you, you say, please come to our show at 5.15. And it was the it most exciting time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was the it was the time when it felt most thrilling because it was people that didn't know us that were coming to the show and they were laughing. And it was like, this this is not our friends. They're not obliged to laugh anymore. Mm. It apparently must be funny in its own right. And that was a, a real eye opener, I think, for us. So that was the, one of the most exciting times. And then it went to radio and then it went to television. And what is remarkable about the television series is how cinematic it is. This yeah. is not sketch comedy anymore. There are sketches, but they all interweave in a certain sense. I mean, as the goons perhaps begat Monty Python, maybe Monty Python begat um, the League of Gentlemen in that regard. But they were all strung into something that was linear that turned into a half hour story in this town of Royston Vasey. Can you tell me what Royston Vasey was? And a lot of our American audience is not familiar with the League of Gentlemen. So yeah. what would you tell them is the pitch for the show? Well, the League really essentially was a sketch show, but the thing that we decided to not allow it to be a sketch show and sort of be dismissed as being something quite, um, you know, uh, generic, we decided mm. to house all of the sketches and the characters in a town. We'd done it on the radio and the, on the radio, it was sort of allegorical because the town was called Spent. And it was as if it was this um, <laughs> this uh, horrible on its knees uh, backwater place. But we decided to have all our strange characters because they're all quite extreme and grotesque. And yet uh, the kernel of them all, I think quite believable in a weird way because people connect to the characters. Completely. Um, yeah, and and the way you inhabit them individually, you can't recognize the three of you in the different roles. You completely take on these other characters. Yeah, I mean that was a great thrill as well because when we done we done the, the live show for a long time before the TV came along, and when it finally came to housing and creating the characters on on TV, we suddenly have to have looks for the characters and what would they look like and we knew that we were only us three play inhabiting an entire town so we thought well is that going to be is that going to become tiring just seeing our faces again and again but we managed i think to quite subtly change our looks and a thrill was to hear from the editor who started editing series, the first series that he he, he he hadn't occurred to him until about three episodes in that there were only three of us. He thought there was about <laughs> six or seven. So that was, that was great. I thought, Oh, good. It's working. And we were um, relieved to hear that we, it didn't just appear that we were the same three faces appearing in, in these various combinations over all of the different sketches. So essentially the, the Royston Vasey became bigger than the sum of its parts because the tone of the place and the, and the and the oddness of the characters imbued the town with a sense of creepy dread, and that I think was only down to what the what the individual stories of the characters were doing. But housing the whole idea in a place gave it 
um, elevated it into something else, I think, that felt more cinematic and more um, insidious and, and kept you hooked with each one of these stories. And as, a, as the character of Benjamin, who was this man, uh, quite young man then, who, who turned up in the town to see his cousin and stay with his strange uncle and aunt, mm. was the person that was the eyes of the audience. He was sort of the most normal character. And he experienced Royce and Vasey the way that any normal person would and see all these very strange individuals that did all these very odd odd things but it was great fun and we were young and quite and uh unencumbered from uh worry and and, and doubt about the 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 material and we were just very sure of it because it arrived and it hit the ground running and it was very undiluted us i don't think you could do it now but we were very sure of it and it, it was it was unapologetic and i think it was very undistilled us as well and that was great because it was a strong flavor and a strong taste and tone, but you sort of couldn't argue with it because it was like, we don't mind if you don't like it. We had created our own world and it was like, you're welcome to come in, but if you don't, we don't need you. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to go forward. Yeah. And, and it seems the BBC was quite generous in that regard because this had a vision. It may have been three men's vision or possibly four counting Dyson, yeah. but, um, but it is so obviously pure and undiluted by executive input. Was that rare at that time? Yes, I think it was rare. And I think um, they, at one point, I remember we were told uh, many months afterward that when we were on one of the wreckies for the, which, the place that would become the town, because we filmed it in a little town called Hadfield in, in Yorkshire and um, uh, Lancashire. And we, it was, we were looking at various towns and driving to the next one and looking, is this, is this grim enough? Is this horrible enough? <laughs> we were thinking, <laughs> trying to pick a horrible place. And, uh, and apparently halfway through that day, it was all off. The BBC had got complete cold feet and they'd said, we're not doing it. Um, it's actually wow. decommissioned. But oh, you, can, you can carry on with them and, and see the day out and see the But our producer was in the car with us looking, had got a call saying it's not happening. Oh. So that they managed to salvage it somehow from the ashes. And, and um, they did. We've had a lot of champions in the room. You know, that's what you need when you're making TV, I think, or anywhere where you, you have someone that's in with the, the people that are there to say yes, p arguing your case for you because you're not always in the room with them. And it was great that we had such champions in John Plowman at the time, who was the exec, and he was—he just said we should make it. It's not like anything else, and that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, so it was great to have him. How great! Well, here you've established yourselves as this troupe of multi-talented actors who can play any number of types of characters, and suddenly people are offering you acting jobs to be an actor for hire. Tell me how that felt after being entirely in control of what you were doing. Well, yes, that, I mean, that was the surprise because, as I say, we never had a, a plan that um, it certainly didn't. I mean, I know we were driven. Mark was very good at doing the meetings. I was always very shy and didn't really ever want to push myself forward. But it happened, and we got a TV show. We got we had 10 years of the league on TV, and, and over time we became um, known for that. And, and in our own rights, I think people saw the – um, the showreel that was all us playing all these different parts in the league. And it was like, well, look at these actors. So yes, we started getting um, offers of acting work. And, and that was when it felt like, wow, this is really been a platform, a, a, a bouncing stepping, a stepping stone onto other things because we're now recognized in the, in, in the way that when we were individuals trying to get acting jobs and not in charge of our 
of our future that, that we never got them. It was so hard. We were one of many people, but this thing that we'd created was there for all to see then. And so we suddenly had people saying, can we get Reese from the league or can we, do you think we could get Mark? And it was, it was a lovely thing to have that already in the room when we arrived, because it was like, you could, you've, you've seen the sort of thing I do. And it was just, it was, it eased the, eased the passage of um, people knowing what you do. Cause you've got, you've only what it's like when you go in for an audition or something. It's, I never get anything from an audition. <laughs> I don't think I ever have, <laughs> but um, so it was great that they, that was there. And it gave me a bit, it emboldened me to think, yes, I can do it. And, and you've seen what I can do. And I just felt a bit more assured about being an actor for hire. And I love being in other people's things. You know, it's great. You have no pressure. It's not your, not your baby. I go in, I'm the best I can be. And then I leave at the end of the day with, without the worry of this thing eventually looming into the world and you being to blame when they don't like it. <laughs> Having been such a chameleon on the show, were there ever times when people go, oh, this is what Reese looks like? <laughs> yes, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I still now I'm surprised people... Um, that anyone recognizes me because I'm never really, I never really look like I look, but, um, but they always are very nice when they meet, if they see me and, and spot me, because it means they, they really know me because they've seen behind the mask. They can recognize, oh, that's that guy from, from the right. local shop. Well, Richard, most, my, my nose is up there. That's when they spot yes, them <laughs> There's nothing for you here. Yeah. Yes. That's right. <laughs> um, the most recent thing I've seen that uh, as we are recording, this is currently in theaters in Los Angeles is the Ben Wheatley film, In the Earth. Yeah. And I loved the film. And your performance is so surprising that I didn't even know it was you until the first credits uh, immediately after the film plays. But not only is it surprising that it's you, but there's a turn in this character that is so unanticipated because it is so well played that he's cert a certain kind of character, but what he's capable of is something you would never expect. And I don't want to give anything away to yeah. people who haven't seen the movie yet, but that must have been quite a demanding but really fun role to play. You have very long hair and a very long beard. Yeah, it was great. And I remember during one of the, because it was all filmed during August last year, right at the height of the, the pandemic. And it was it was a thrill to be doing anything. It was quite scary but it was all outside and we were all tested every day and it felt very safe and as safe as you could be but I think we genuinely were one of the first productions back out trying to do it so the very act of doing it felt like such a ray of hope that we would it could be possible to do things you know and Ben had written this thing in the lockdown and, and he told me about Zach this character that lived in the woods and uh, his mysterious presence and I remember one day I turned to him as I was having just done a take of wildly running through the woods, hacking at this um, undergrowth with a huge ax. And I said, thank you for writing this for me, Ben. Because <laughs> it, was, it was such a thrill. I was doing my Jack Torrance. It was the best best thing, <laughs> thing in the world. But yeah, it was great. And it was, it was a nuanced, I hoped, the thing I wanted to get right with Zach was that it, it wasn't as, um, it, it could have been a bit more... Uh, flagged as far as what he was capable of and, and right. his, the trajectory of the character. So I thought I, I, the most terrifying sort of, the thing that I thought would be more frightening would be if, if he was so reasonable 
Yeah. He's well, the humanity, to argue with him. Yes, yes. His so humanity is, is so evident, and you make it so clear. Your performance is very subtle in that regard, that when the twist comes, it's genuine. And, you know, we're probably fucking it up for people right now. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the movie is wonderful. Uh, it also brings to mind that you have worked multiple times with directors like Edgar Wright. You worked on Spaced and then you worked on a couple of his other movies. Yeah. So tell me about that shorthand. I know I have favorite actors that I like to work with repeatedly. And it's a joy to be on set together and, and collaborate in ways that are so much simpler and, and more fun than with people you haven't worked with before. Absolutely, yes. I mean, it's one of the great treats when you work on return to work with people that you know you just get on with there's such a like you say a shorthand and you arrive at, at, at suggestions and thoughts and you're free to try stuff out because you feel emboldened to, to try stuff out you feel um safe in the hands of the mutual respect that you have for the person because you think i'm not going to be i'm not going to feel foolish to try this out or even su suggest it sometimes you feel like you're trying to second guess the person if you don't quite know them well enough to be able to just have easy passage to be able to just talk freely and you're, you're slightly more there's nothing worse I don't think you know doing the number nines we talk about that in any production where you don't feel any sort of atmosphere over it or slightly um, dampened or meek relationship that you have you want to be abs absolutely be able to to speak your mind and delve deeper and 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 feel and, you know, I love it when a director makes me do something where I would never have thought of it or pushes me into a direction where to make me better. That's what I want. Yeah. And, I, and I'm very happy to have anyone to say, why not try it like this? Because, you you know, and I love it if, if I feel like, yes, this, that's not what I would have done naturally. And so that often feels like you're opening a door that you've never been in into a room you've never been in before. And that's thrilling. And the same in the reverse, to have an actor bring something that you don't expect, especially if you're a writer-director, they bring something in that's better than what you had in mind. Oh, hallelujah. Yes, you know? absolutely. Yeah, it's, that's, uh, it is fantastic. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's the, I think that's the difference maybe of people. I've worked with some people that have a, a ceiling of where they want to be and, and they're very rigid about what they, what script is that they've got and that's that and you will not deviate from one mm. dot or and and you think well why put a lid on it everyone could bring something to this and it could be elevated and clearly that's the better place to be because you all you want is for it to be better and better and better so take every idea every magpie that you can get and put it all into the hat because i don't know everything i'm not you know, Orson Welles and um, just sort of like <laughs> deciding every hat is, I, I own every hat. So it was, it's, it's thrilling to work with. You know, and Edgar is, is, is a prime example of, of a great director that's was fun and lets you feel very free. And, and Ben the same. I've worked on three of Ben's films, A Field in England and High Rise. And again, he's always very open to any new trajectory that you may bring or, or, or new difference. And, it, and you, you just, you don't mind when he says that's great, but maybe one where, we turn it down a bit or right. let's go, let's go for a mad one, you know? So it's fantastic to feel that he's got all options. And it's great that both of these directors seem to have a, a real affection for the genre as well, for the horror genre too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they, they see it for what it is, you know, it's it, it always the, the terrible thought that, I mean, I think maybe less now, but the, my teen years was always had a tinge of like is it do people find the horror genre like 
risible? Is it is it a derided um, genre, which is always very strange? And I think, why is that? And I, I have a theory that it's to do with, and I've said this before, um, the relinquishing of uh, emotion. Because I think reviewers, oftentimes, they can't, they have to stand over and outside of the thing that they might be reviewing and critiquing so and and they they have to be dispassionate and impassionate it can't have it mustn't have worked on them otherwise they will have felt some things and with horror you have to feel it and you want to have an, an, an engagement with it and i think maybe that puts them in a weaker position because um if they have felt something or if it worked and it got to them and they were frightened then somehow it's actually got their they're in the thrall of the the filmmakers um you know, um, raison d'etre, and that's difficult for them to sort of relinquish the power of the critic. So they've got to stay outside of it and look down on it. And that's often the thing I think about horror. It's like they can't allow it. And, and therefore the same with comedy. Yes, exactly. It, exactly they, the same they, with comedy. They are seen as gutter genre because they are so visceral. Absolutely, and yeah. That's the response you said. is physical. Yeah. yeah, exactly that. Yeah. You said it in one sentence. I've been babbling on for 20 minutes. That's exactly right. <laughs> exactly much right. Yours was much more entertaining. <laughs> no, no. But um, the the whole case of Inside Number Nine, the, the I've created a couple of, uh, of anthology shows, and I love the beauty of something entirely new each week. Yeah. Yours, you're about to uh, be launching your sixth season yeah. as we speak now. Um, they've all been made, and every one of them is completely different from each. And it's not afraid of being sentimental. Uh, it it can go anywhere. It doesn't have to be a horror story, but there's almost always dark elements to it. And yeah. the beauty of this, it seems like the ultimate job for a creator, for an actor, for a writer, to be able to be completely free, whatever the hell you want to do, you're going to do it. And you have a friend, a partner to do a partner in crime to do this with. Tell me about how that came out of league and then psychoville and then, and then into number nine. Yeah. I mean, it, you have described the sort of the, the blessed life that I lead because I can't quite believe that we are, you know, from 2011, when we first thought of the idea of inside number nine, we'd still be doing it in this year in 20, um, 21 it's incredible but we would finished psychoville which was very much a a narrative driven show we really wanted in, at the time we were looking at the bo the box sets that were arriving and the the cliffhanger endings it was 24 really that we were emulating we thought let's have a horror comedy 24 where you can't wait to watch the next one that was basically our our thought having done the league and very being very sketch show based our writing was turning more and more to a narrative storylines and we wanted to sort of embrace that and um write a big sprawling um situation that you, you you couldn't wait to watch the next one and so we'd done that and we got to the second series of psychoville and we went to have our meeting with the bbc and we thought they would want a third but we thought if they don't what what do we say and so we had up our sleeve the notion that we would return to uh the anthology show that the tales of the unexpected twilight zone uh, um house of horror um Alfred Hitchcock presents there'd been a long lineage of brilliant obviously um fantastic anthology series and they weren't doing them anymore it was out of favor completely with yeah. tv execs the received wisdom was that you 
want to hook an audience in with an ongoing story. They want to see the same characters week upon week, what happens to them and why would they ever return if the characters were different the next week? Mm-hmm. And of course, that's only the only people that think that are people that are making television executive producers because the real people normal people would watch it doesn't matter they haven't got a theory about why they like something if it's good and a great story hooks you in doesn't matter what it is so we just thought there is room in the world for a a great anthology um each week a different thing we were thinking of the world of saki and we just thought there's there's worlds where we can just uh the power of the word and little play for today's BBC two had a great lineage of these shows that used to be on. And there were one-off stories. Thriller was another one beast, Nigel Neal. And we thought there's, we'd love to be able to do that and just have a little troop of actors that come in, do these shows. We we could tonally change it every week. The, the taste, it would be very scary one week. It would be totally slapstick the next week. We would experiment with, the genre. I mean, this is what sort of emerged as we got commissioned series upon series, but initially we had our six stories and they said, yes, make them. And by the end of the, before we'd even finished and the first series, they'd already commissioned the next series. Nice. And it was amazing. Yes. Yeah, so we were on a roll and we've managed. And now the enjoyment for us is that we, as I just said, we, we get to play with the, the, the way of telling stories. So using the TV genre as a how do we tell this story we did our live halloween episode that um they asked us to do and we we're, we're not really interested in doing it but then they oh well, but we it's got, but it's, we got excited when uh, yeah we got excited when we thought but what if it goes wrong and that yeah. would be that's the thrilling part so suddenly we were able to have fun with playing so ourselves this is supposed to be live this is yeah live the halloween show and it starts going way wrong yeah and tuner uh viewers tuned out they didn't that's right understand. tell me about that yeah well we 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 went on tv and we did we promoted the show and we said we were doing this live episode and it was going to be five cameras and who knows what's going to happen but let's hope we get through it and in that way that when you you do see that these shows do attempts these live events you know viewers only watch because they want the audience they want the actor to fluff his lines or some <laughs> furniture might get yeah. knocked over so we thought well the expectation of that will be all over it but then we filmed the Halloween special, uh, or we said we did, at Granada Studios in Yorkshire, which actually wasn't, we couldn't get it in the end, but we said we'd filmed it there because Granada Studios has apparently got this history of being haunted. Ah. And on a, literally like in Stephen King, like an, on a burial ground. So we thought, well, this is going to be, this has to be <laughs> the perfect place to try to attempt a Halloween special with Inside Number 9 and the ghosts don't want us to. So that was the ultimate backstory. And so we began the show and it was like, it was fine. It was like a, a typical Inside Number 9, a man find, finds a phone in a graveyard and it rings and this person is speaking to him. And then the, the sound cut out. Nine minutes in, the sound cuts out. And everyone was like, oh no, it's going wrong. And then it came back and then it went again. And it was the most awful thing to watch. I watched it back. It was one of the most tragic things because it was like, you felt so sorry for us because it was like all this planning and it was going wrong. And then eventually it completely breaks down and the BBC Two announcer comes on and says, we're very sorry, we can't get back to it tonight. Here's a repeat of an old Inside Number Nine. And then an old Inside Number Nine came on, uh-huh. repeated. This is when everyone turned off because uh-huh. oh, it's gone wrong, forget it. A fifth of the audience at this point, Mick, oh, turned my- off. Oh. <laughs> but if they'd and stayed a few mind. <laughs> no i loved it i loved it because i thought we've we've done it we've we've managed to make them believe it's really happened and then in the old footage of the old episode we superimposed a ghost in the back that mm. suddenly appears and ruins the shot 
And then it cuts to the CCTV cameras of me and Steve in our dressing room, in our outfits, just talking. It's as if the cameras have been turned on. And from that moment on, it's sort of a found footage of the ghosts in the uh, in the Granada studios, sort of capturing what was happening to us as the actors whilst we wait to see if we will continue with the broadcast. And then a very strange sort of uh, kaleidoscopic story unfolds with old archive footage of other happenings in the studio. And we eventually get chased and killed. And then our <laughs> Wikipedia pages were both changed to died 31st of October, 2018. <laughs> it's just great. Awesome. So you, it was great fun. Yeah. Have you seen the Japanese film One Cut of the Dead? No, I haven't. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, wow. You think, you think you're seeing one thing for the first 20 minutes and then it it's it's very reminiscent of what you oh, do. Oh, wow, I must see it. Yes, I shall put that now, down. The BBC has a tradition that we don't have here in the US of the Christmas ghost story. Yeah. And tell me how that inspired uh, um, your own Christmas ghost story on number yeah, nine. Yeah, for the devil of Christmas, yes. Well, all of the M.R. James ghost stories were in the 70s and 80s. Um, it became a tradition, as you say, that Lawrence Gordon Clark would film these to spectacularly terrifying effect. I think there's some one of the, some of the greatest, scariest television made in these adaptations. And Mark Gatiss now actually is sort of um, bringing back the tradition. He's done a few himself and managed to um, mm. persuade the BBC to bring it back. It's such a lovely thing at Christmas to get another ghost yeah. story. Yeah. And um, we wanted to, we thought it'd be great to do a, not particularly homage to that, but we wanted definitely to, it occurred to us one day that the the lineage of our Inside Number Nine had come from Tales of the Unexpected and early seventies and eighties anthology shows, and we thought, let's do one that looks like it's archive. It's an archive footage. It's an, a lost episode of something that was of the time, because yeah. what happened was we were thinking of a story for Krampus, the the, the legend, the Austrian demon, mm. uh, anti Christmas, Father Christmas, and we were began writing it quite straight and um it just felt a bit hokey it felt a little bit on the nose and we thought there's this is sort of not good enough to it doesn't hold up enough in its own right but the thing that unlocked it for us was that if we put it through the prism of a more um overt retelling in a, an earlier in an 80s or 70s story where you would have all the subtext and on its sleeve and it would be it was it was suddenly allowed to be as sort of bad as it was as a storyline <laughs> because the, it, all the exposition was fine because that's how they used to do it then and it was a little bit cruder but the fun part was um sourcing original late 70s 80s cameras and sound equipment and indeed cameramen who were all in their 80s to come wow. and film it for us. So it was absolutely authentic. And um, we managed to film this thing and then put it back through onto old videotape and then and make it look terrible, do it in four by three. And it was, it was a joy because it was completely authentic. And one of the greatest sort of acts of restraint was on our part was it wasn't, we didn't make it too bad because we had booms dropping in and slightly right. off <laughs> stuff. And, but it was, um, and, and the, the reveal of that was one of the most chilling I think we've ever done because three or four minutes into watching this episode, um, that's like an old an old um, Hammer House of Horror or um, thriller or Alfred Hitchcock presents. It, 
it stops, rewinds, and you hear the voice of the director start talking over it. And you become aware that you're watching a director's commentary of this old episode that's <laughs> been found and he's re recalling, it seems, what, what it was like to film it. And then we get all the way through to the end and you're listening to this man being chatting about his work and it ends up, the camera sort of gets wheeled off the set and it's actually, this is a spoiler, you have been watching basically the setup for a snuff movie. So suddenly the character is killed on, <laughs> on, on the set. And, and it isn't a, a director's commentary. It's a police interview with the director that filmed the snuff movie. It's so that's so where it ends. So it's a great uh, surprise at the end. That was a really, really great one. Because it was on, on the one surface, it, was, it would have been fine to just do the homage and do the great pastiche, I think, and uh, had our fun with the authenticity of it. But it was great to have this extra layer that where it did genuinely sort of pay off that it was something else again. Yeah. Well, one of the most notable things about the show is how incredibly complicated it is and how rehearsed everything is. <clears throat> I mean, everything twists and changes and it's it's uh it, it is so labyrinthine yeah and and how it's done i, I think of one of the episodes zanzibar the hotel zanzibar which yeah. is all done in rhyming shakespearean couplets yeah. um it is so monstrously complicated <laughs> to do how how much how much um rehearsal goes into these shows yes well some are definite challenges that we very quickly wish we hadn't set ourselves. <laughs> Especially with the, the Shakespeare one was a real challenge. It's like, why have we begun this? You know, trying to write in iambic pentameter. And that did get a lot of rehearsal. We had a week, I think, of rehearsal for that because we thought we'll need it because it was sort of, that was born from wanting to do a farce. We'd not quite done an episode of number nine that was a pure out and out farce. Right. And then we thought, let's do a farce but let's have the off bits of a farce. Farces are often, you know, there's lots of shutting doors and people in and out of rooms But we thought let's have, let's assume there's a farce going on in all the ho hotel rooms, but our <laughs> farce will be just in the corridor. So that's what we, that, and then we thought, and let's make it Shakespearean. So we could have uh, uh, the twins in the mix up with the twins, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a great, that was great fun. But yes, one of the, one of the, th one of the continual challenges of number nine now, six series in is to sort of not, repeat ourselves and not feel like you're you've you're doing something that we you've done before and it's sort of wrapped you know we know the nuts and bolts of what an episode it consists of and and i sometimes think this is a good idea but it's sort of that wrapped up in a different way so with it just being the two of us it's becoming it's very adversarial that our relationship with the audience now because they expect um a jaw-dropping <laughs> revelation it's hard to sort of maintain that uh, especially when you go in knowing, you know, their arms are folded and they're they're looking for <laughs> all is not as it seems. Blow me away. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I dare you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, following up Zanzibar was, you know, you get Bernie Clifton's dressing room. <laughs> yes. You go back to, I mean, it couldn't be more different. And it's, you are uh, Bud Abbott to Steve's uh, Lou Costello, yeah. but more in a music hall tradition, a British music hall tradition. So tell me about that. I mean, did you love these these comedian, the duo comedians that were from the music hall tradition, and and how, that had to have been a lot of work as well. Yeah, that that was um, that the initial idea for Bernie Clifton's dressing room. Bernie Clifton, for the US listeners, is a, a British um, sort of vaudeville variety um, act, 
and he had a funny thing where he would it appeared that he would sit on a an ostrich and his legs were the feet of the ostrich and he would just ride around it seemed you know that was his act that was all it you needed to do <laughs> apparently in the 70s to create a a huge following but uh it very fondly um remembered and we wanted to do initially it was i said to steve we should do a two-hander we've never done a, an episode where it's just us two yeah. and and we and so we thought well what could that be and then we thought of um sunshine boys and we thought would it it would be great to be able to use somehow comedy within it and so we were we thought of the scenario of um a stand-up act a double act that had um sort of failed to not quite get through the their heyday and they'd they'd split up they'd become just regular one of them was sort of clinging on to the heyday and the other one had been completely put it behind him and was a businessman and very level-headed and yet they were coming back to do one last act for this variety show and um it was really an uh, an exploration of despite the fact that it was they were fictitious it was sort of was me and steve in a way because we have known each other for 30 years and it was it felt very biographical in a way because it was about a friendship and um, the ups and downs and the reveal in that again a spoiler if you haven't seen it but um it, it turns out that one of them is actually a ghost and and he's um he's sort of and he's at the wake he's going to it's his funeral the day of the funeral and it's sort of the things he never said to his partner and he's having this argument one last time and it's a very poignant episode and very moving and i think that's what surprises the people about the number nines because Yes, we do silly ones and we do scary ones, but sometimes I think we do very emotional, heartfelt ones that blindside you by being, they almost make you cry, you know, and I think people are surprised that we do that as well. And that's well, that was why I brought, I brought that one up in particular, because you're not afraid of emotion in this. Yeah, absolutely, you know, yeah. Um, it's not just about raising the hackles or making you giggle and the like. Yeah. Um, and then on the other hand, Total Slapstick, A Quiet Night In, is the yes. first episode I saw. And right. the first time the lights come on, I was on the floor. I mean, <laughs> right. it's so beautifully choreographed and played out. And, and so you must work very closely with your director on the show. Yeah, that one was a very, um, very detailed exploration of that house, certainly. We'd written the script and then we had to find the house. It wasn't the other way around. And we thought, let's, let's go and find this... Um, this place that has to house all these events because the script was 18 pages of stage direction. You know, we, we began right. writing it. We thought, can we do, wouldn't it be good to be able to do not a particularly a silent episode, but there is a reason to have to be silent because they're robbing the house. So it was sort of by accident where we're in silent movie territory and we but thought it'd no be great. If we, yeah. No dialogue. And we thought it'd be great if we could, you know, maybe get the first 10 minutes where we, we don't speak and we did it. And then we thought, Oh, can we actually get to the end without ever speaking? And that was then suddenly we had to do it. So, and it's really, really hard to continually write stuff that that allows the story to unfold visually. You know, you suddenly realize how brilliant these um, silent comedies were for giving you story and it all just being visual cues. So we managed to do it. Then we found the house and it was a very long particular day. I remember very clearly going through the house with David Kerr, the director and looking that we could do it in in all the shots that we would need and I could hide behind it when the, the argument happens outside with the, the couple and we're inside trying to steal this painting. The whole thing was about trying to steal this ludicrously silly painting that was white but apparently worth a fortune. And um, 
yes, and it became very, very silly. We had some great visual gags with these, with a huge dog and a small dog, and um, it just became a, a, a ballet, really. And we rehearsed that for a while, but uh, it was all night shoots because, and it, it was one hot summer, and uh, yeah, we filmed it in this box that was a glass, very huge modern glass house, which was difficult for the for all the all the wrong reasons, you know, with all the um, reflections. But yeah, the first gag we came up with was was one of the great that was sort of kicked off. We thought that that could I can imagine that being very funny with the the uh, security lights coming on as they're trying to creep toward the house like grandmother's footsteps. <laughs> and they're frozen. <laughs> yeah, then we stop <laughs> and then they go off again. Yeah. It was great fun. Yeah. Uh, who were your heroes? The 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 authors, the filmmakers, the the playwrights. Who were the people that really seeded your imagination? Oh, I think I mean a lot of it was comedy, but a lot was documentaries as well. I think I remember um, and, and all the great comedy actors, actors that were great but were good at comedy, like Peter Sellers and Leonard Rossiter, mm -hmm. and uh, Ronnie Barker, and. Writers Alan Bennett and Victoria Wood were, were great influences on our our northern voice because they had a very particular way of, of speaking, and and plays. I think uh, Harold Pinto was a great inspiration because he was doing the dark thing. He was that was a very um, intriguing voice as well to me as a, as a young man. And and Edgar Allan Poe for the horror side. I never strayed away from him. Obviously Stephen King. Still yeah. is the the greatest, you know. He looms large, and I I always think of how he creates horror with the people of his stories, you know. And that's that's the the thing of it, isn't it? That's the where where your your true horror lies. That the that the um the ghost isn't in the scary looking castle; it's in the radiator, and it's that m modern thing, you know, where you think that's my house, that's where I could live, and suddenly everything is the stakes are far far greater because you recognize yourself and those people. And so that's, I think, when you get it right, when you, you stay in the land, of, in, in the reality of the world, and that's all, and then it's funnier and it's scarier, you know, because it matters and you, you recognize the, the, the people for humans, you know, sometimes the, the worst is the, the human monster. Absolutely. One, yeah. one of the most impressive things about number nine and about you and as Steve as artists is that the artistry is pure. You're constantly challenging yourselves. Is there anything that you haven't done yet that you're chomping at the bit to do? We have, we wrote a script that we wanted to do that was a full on musical. Oh, wow. And that would have been great. We sort of did something that scratched the itch of it with our episode that was set in a karaoke booth because we we sort of, in that story, the storytelling was projected and helped via the lyrics of the songs that were being played in the karaoke booth. So the characters were accidentally moving the story forward with, it, with the lines they were singing. But this was a full-on uh, musical episode that we... It was too expensive to do. It's such a, a big ask to, um, and we, you know, we are um, scuppered constantly by budgetary means. I mean, in one way, it's frustrating, but in another way, it, it has unlocked our invention because we still operate with such tiny budgets that we think, well, all right, we can't do this, but what? How? How? How could we do it if we? if apparently we've got no money at all. One of the episodes last season was about two policemen in a car doing a stakeout. And that was a very successful one, I think, in the end. But it was written in a week 
because they suddenly said, we haven't got the money for an ep- this episode you've written. Can you, have you got another one in a drawer? They always think we've just got a pile of them in a drawer, like the Coen oh. brothers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Here we go. Have that one. So, um, but it was, you know, and we basically wrote the cheapest thing we could think of, which is two people in a car talking to each other. And yet, of course, it looks great in the end and they spend money on it. But nevertheless, it was like a radio play. But the invention of it and then the story that comes out of it was, um, I don't know if you've seen that one, Mick, but that's a really good one. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, well, I'm not going to spoil a third storyline. But uh, yeah, and that was nice because it was just, um, it felt like uh, from the, the ashes of, despair of not having the money we we could we thought of something that may not have happened had we made the other one you know so sometimes the uh the constraints are the thing that liberates you and, and makes you think well how do we do it then the lines are very difficult to write because you you rob yourself of the exposition time because we never go anywhere and often <laughs> <laughs> they're often real time and you stay in the room and it's very hard to keep as you know it to keep conversation going and not apparently speak any exposition is and hide it is very difficult so that that i think has helped our writing skills certainly in the execution of these stories well beyond number nine for reese shearsmith personally are there goals that you have that you have not been able to tackle yet um yeah well i'd love to um do more acting in other people's things i i love our and i'd like to do a film i'd like i think me and steve should write a film we've never we've never quite ever dared do it so i don't quite know why what's holding us back but ben is always saying write your film i'll direct it <laughs> yeah. so uh write some horrible gnarly old film so we might do that that would be great i mean i'm very happy with our lot we keep getting recommissioned with the number nines and that's all consuming you know so we are always just sat in a room thinking what what we could do anything. What can we do? What should we do? And that's a, a joyous thing, but also terrifying because you do start to think what I need to, the, the well needs to be refilled a little bit. Let me go away for a while. I just did a, a lovely job um, f- with uh, Fox searchlight with a, a murder mystery um, with uh, Sam Rockwell and Saoirse uh-huh. Ronan and um, Adrian Brody. And that was, that was a fun thing to do. It was all set in um, theater land in the 1950s around the hundredth um performance of the mouse trap so it's a very meta oh, wow. okay. um agatha christie which is fun to do and that was nice that just came along and i was just an actor in it now i had days where i was just arriving on the set and i had no responsibility other than being <laughs> the best i could be and i went away again but um yeah i would just like to be think thought of for more more films and i'd love to do more horror i, I love horror yeah. films and i'd love to be in any to be i, I always wished that um i could have been a, a, a murderer in colombo that's my one. <laughs> that was the goal, and now it's. I, I can't do it. Yeah. Well, Reese, I hope that we've whetted the appetite for some of the American audience that's not familiar with your work. But it's just a total pleasure to get to speak with you and and find out uh, how you operate and where you came yeah. from. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mickey. It's been a joy. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.